0: Amen. All right, we're taking a break from the book of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we only have like most of the folks in front of us that haven't been with us for the first half of the book. So yeah, that would be hard to review all that. So, uh, but there's other reasons. We are going to turn to Ephesians chapter four. We'll see how favored it is in a minute here. Ephesians four. And this is going to be uh, what I would call a textual topical sermon, obviously, because it's a one-off. We're going to really be focusing on one verse, but I I can't help but deal with the context. Um, um, it's, It's never a good thing to rip a verse out and make it say what you feel like it should say or you want it to say. So that means you're going to have to do the hard work of working a little bit through the context so that the verse will have its punch. And then we'll be turning to one other passage, uh, 1 Timothy 6. But we're going to start with Ephesians 4. Um, we're going to read, we're going to start in verse 17, we'll stop when I feel like stopping. Like when we're in Italy, we say, when they say, where, where do we turn, I said, I'll, I'll know it when I feel it. doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, but it worked, didn't it? Let's stand together for the reading. Of God's holy, authoritative word. Ephesians four seventeen. Hear the word of God to you this morning. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. And here's our verse. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we really do pray this morning that you would give us open, humble, receptive hearts. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be quick to take offense, but instead, Lord, we would receive the gentle, firm, loving correction and conviction of your word as you speak it to us to conform us more into the image of your glorious Son who loves us so much he gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people that are his very own who are eager to do what is good. It's in His name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, there you have it. We read the verse. No more stealing. Right? This isn't isn't James. It's it's Paul. If it was James, it would be, knock it off. But Paul says, there's no more stealing. Get to work so you can help those in need. Right? Right? That's the message. So I could say, let's pray. (laughs) But we ain't going to do that, sorry. But that's exactly what happens when lazy and thieving folks are transformed through the believing of the gospel of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what happens. Lives are absolutely transformed and changed. And the neat thing Paul points out here is, is even though it's a command, we'll look at it in a moment, thieves don't only settle down and work with their hands in order to provide for themselves and not to be a drain on the community around them, but look what he says is going to happen. They begin to give generously to those who are really in need. In a very real sense, it's important for the work we do here at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City, in a very real sense that's A very large part of God's overarching plan to transform communities, listen, one soul at a time, one family at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one community at a time, one city at a time. Interesting here, the gospel transforms not only poor folk, we're going to look at this in a moment when we turn to the passage in Timothy, but it also transforms wealthy people. And sometimes they think they don't need to be transformed. But the Bible begs to differ. When we talk about wealthy people, we're talking about people who are blessed with material riches in this world. And what the gospel does for them is it softens their hearts toward those in need. It transforms their selfish greed into generous deeds of love and mercy. We'll be seeing that in 1 Timothy 6. So one of our core values, we have a number of them, about nine or so, I think nine or ten at New City. Um, They're not really in any particular order except for the first one. And the first core value is this. The gospel changes everything. So that means we, are, we, uh, we strive to be gospel-focused in all we say and all we do here at New City. And here's the issue. When you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, He keeps His promise to come and dwell in you through His Holy Spirit. That's not just good theology. That's reality. That's experiential religion. But when He does, as many, hopefully all of us in this room have known, Uh, firsthand. When he does move in, he starts making some serious renovations. Right? He starts saying, ooh, this has got to go. Mm-hmm. He grabs it, whips it out. And then he goes, ooh, we're changing that up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know that, let's take that big old thing. Yeah, put it down here, Holy Spirit. You know that big old thing called uh, generosity? Oh, where are we going to put it? Yeah, where that big ugly piece of furniture called greed used to be. You follow me? That's what happens. Jesus starts changing stuff around. But here's the issue as genuine and as real as that transformation is, we all know from painful experience it's a lifelong process that starts with conversion. That's when we first come to trust in Jesus. And it's not complete. It's never going to be complete until Jesus returns and we arrive in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why we see together soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Because we groan inwardly as we await the adoption of sons. We get tired of this sinful flesh dragging us down. You can say amen on that one. I mean, you know, we could could say that. It's all right. The issue is, as new creations in Christ, we still have a sinful nature. And here's the issue. It doesn't really appreciate the renovations Jesus is making. We don't get a lot. Oh, thank you, Lord. How awesome that is. I'd love to give all my money away. Thanks, Jesus. That's good. But the good news is, and this is the great side, the, the great news about it, is that on God's side of the equation, he will carry on to completion the work he first started in us until the day of Christ Jesus. He is relentless. You know, I have a cat that's relentless. Anybody else have like an animal that's relentless? My stinking cat, Lucy, was, is going to get on my lap come heck or high water. And I will knock her off and she's back on. And I'll throw her on the ground and she's back on. And I will do this a number of times where I'm like crying out loud. But you know what? She finally gets the point eventually. And sometimes though, I'm just like, you know, just sit on my lap. While my laptop is here, she's on top of it. It's crazy, right? Thank God he's way more relentless than my cat. He's just going to get it done. That's the good news of the gospel. But, Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't teach quietism. Come on, Pastor Santer. You're getting theological again. Here's quietism. You want to know what it is? Let go and let God. I'm just kind of, kind of like my wife goes in my backyard and gets on a floaty in the bay there and just let go. That's not biblical spirituality when it comes to this Christian life. We don't let go and tell God to do everything. It actually tells us right here, Paul tells us, we just read it in Ephesians 4, there is a down-to-earth way of us to cooperate with the grace of God that is so powerfully at work within us. If we were in the book of Philippians, I'd go to the verse, work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you to will and to do. Well, here Paul makes it very down to earth and practical he, he really stops preaching and he starts meddling in this chapter he starts calling names you know where you, that's where you start getting in trouble when you start getting real specific well Paul starts doing that here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what Paul does is he says let's go back to when you were first saved let's go back to the time of your conversion and I'm going to read it again verse 422 he says this is what you were taught from the get go This wasn't 102, class 201, or whatever. This is the very beginning. He says this, you were taught when you first heard from Christ, the gospel. Because when the gospel came to you in the text, what it actually says is when you first heard Jesus. In other words, Jesus speaks through the gospel. He himself. So you were taught with regard to your former way of life, this is what you were taught, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's the awesome thing. The new self has already been created. If you know Jesus. It's already a work of God. You are a new person. Hallelujah! 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 Praise Jesus. And notice this new person that you're created to be like is to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. So what Paul is going to tell us here, it's important to see this, in light of this accomplished fact, we're to live out and practice every day by continuing to do what we did at conversion in specific areas of life. We need to continue to put off and put on. You know, when you get up in the morning, every morning, hopefully, some of us might get ripe if we don't do this, but every morning, hopefully, you change. You know, you put off the old stuff, and you put on the new stuff. It's not once and done. That's what we're going to see here. Because Paul is talking to the church, and he's saying, you need to keep doing these things. Don't get lazy. And so in verse 25, he says this, Therefore, since this is true, You have already put off the old, put on the new. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, etc. So here's the issue. Put off this which flowed out of your old self. Because the flesh is still there, brothers and sisters. It's going to be there until we see Jesus. That's why we talk about fighting the good fight. That's what we talk about it's a, it's a struggle. It is. Put off that old self, which flows out of their sinful nature, and put on the new self that's already created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's the gospel principle. You know, I, I like to use this illustration because it's so vivid to me. Um, some of you, have any of you gone clamming with us yet? I taken, oh, this team hasn't gone clamming. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. So we go clamming, and when we go out in that New Jersey Bay, I'm just saying, woo, it stinks. It stinks. You get in the mud, right, and you get your pants and your booties and your socks, and it's, it's literally, ooh, see, that's what it sounds like. And I got to be honest, when you're in the sun all day, that stuff, like as I mentioned earlier, that stuff is getting ripe. So I can't wait to get home and peel, literally peel that stuff off of me and get into a shower. And, and, and you know what? You still smell it. You know? So you like really scrub it. Might, it might be the, the second shower later that you really feel. But what Paul is saying is look, you're a new person in Christ. Why in the world? Like, who in their right mind? You know that stuff that you discarded that you put at the, at the bottom? of the shower outside, you know, the muddy boots and the stinky shorts you had on and that shirt that, woof, you probably should have just burned it and not tried to wash it. <laughs> Who's going to go over there after they take a shower and put that nasty stuff back on? And all this, the list of things he mentions here, that's what the clothes are. The stealing. The foul language from your mouth anger, the sinful anger, and so on. And so this, this we're going to focus on one of those filthy pieces of clothing. Let's call it the smelly booties, because, man, they stink. We're going to talk about putting off stealing and putting on honest hard work. And we're going to see from this passage, and then we're going to jump to 1 Timothy 6, this simple truth. The gospel has the power to transform thieves to deal with our greed so that we joyfully help those who are in need. See, my, my wife wonders, what am I doing when I'm preparing sermons? I've got to get this stuff to rhyme. <laughs> so the gospel has the power to transform thieves, deal with our greed, so we joyfully help those who are really in need. Let's take a look at the first one. The gospel transforms thieves. And it's our verse, 28. And this is a pretty short point. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So what Paul is saying is take off those robbers' clothes, right? And instead put on your work clothes. Get to working. Honest work. The gospel, when Christ comes into our life, the gospel convicts us of taking what is not rightfully ours to obtain our daily bread and it energizes us to do what? To have a good work ethic. To work, and it's interesting, Paul uses specific language to work with our hands because our culture looks down very often on people that work with their hands. I was born and raised by a a bricklayer and I'll tell you, I got more, more respect for that man than almost anybody else. He worked hard with his hands so that he could provide for his family and others. And Paul is saying there's no shame in hard work. As a matter of fact, God really looks upon it with a big smile. And when you see you're tempted, when you see a construction worker, maybe to look down, maybe you're white collar. God is saying the gospel comes and says, don't you dare. You know better than that. They're doing the right thing. Proverbs 13 says this, Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. i got nothing against entrepreneurs, but everybody can't be one. And we wouldn't think this, but the Bible says you gather it little by little before you know it, you're going to have it. If you get your money dishonestly, God could take it away like that. Watch them. So I saw a funny meme on, on one of my friends' Facebook walls. I, I, you know Sometimes I hate quote from Facebook, but this is so good. It, it, the meme said this. What is one action you took this week to make your financial life better? Go. Then it had one response hi- highlighted. Went to work. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I was just like, Brilliant! absolutely brilliant. I'm like that, you know, I don't have to get too much longer on the point, this point of this sermon. It was perfect. But it's interesting. I want to say this because this is, it's convicting to all of us. You know, when we look at this verse, we might be tempted to think, well, it doesn't really speak to me because I never robbed the bank, right? I never picked a pocket. I didn't burglarize a house or a car lately. So I'm exempt. Well, John Stott, he was a British expositor, a uh, very uh, wonderful Christian man is now with Jesus. This is what he had to say in his commentary, and I thought it was powerful. He said, Do not steal was the eighth commandment of Moses' law. It had and still has a wide application, not only to the stealing of other people's money or possessions, but also to tax evasions and custom dodges which rob the government of their dues. Now listen to employers who oppress their workers. And to employees who give poor service or work short time. You know, it's not a unique thing, right? Because all the commandments have a much deeper application than the face value. Don't commit adultery. Hey, I never cheated on my wife, never touched another woman. You ever lust after a woman in your heart? Oops. Jesus says, then you committed adultery. You need to repent. And turn from it same here with stealing gospel te- teaches us to take off the old clothes of robbery and laziness which many of us are tempted toward and put on the clothing of hard work Just there's a, there's a twist here that I, I used to see this in this text I used to think this was a great twist uh, notice what he says he doesn't, he, in, in the other passages he'll say don't lie but tell the truth don't use foul language but only helpful language right So you would expect, don't steal, but work, so that you'll be able to provide for yourself, right? But that's not what he says. He says, don't steal, but work, so what? You'll be able to give to those who are in need. And I used to say, what a twist! And then, boom! First time in walking with Jesus, I've been walking with Jesus for over 32 years. I love it when he shows you something brand new you've never seen before in the Bible. Isn't that cool? Even You, know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, I don't know about that. People say, well, I ain't no dog. Well, uh, the point is, he did teach me something new. Guess what? It's not a twist. And I'll tell you why it's not a twist. Every single one of the, the issues Paul brings up, he ends it in how it affects others, not how it simply helps us. In other words, the Bible doesn't just tell us to say no to sin, but to say yes to service of others. It's a big deal. So notice the call to put off falsehood and uh, put off unwholesome talk. They're both followed up with positive changes that affect not just ourselves, but the rest of the body of Christ. Look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're members of one body. See that? I used to wonder, why does he add that part? Like, what is it? Because it has to do with how it affects the body. We all affect one another, and we affect the world around us. Then again in verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Why? That you might be self-fulfilled and, and sanctified? Well, that's true, but that's not what he says. That it may benefit those who listen. That's why. Listen, this is profound. I I, I don't want to rush through this. The gospel transformation that comes with us when we first met Jesus is not simply for our own personal growth and sanctification. That's the point. Of course it is for that, but not primarily. The reason for being conformed more and more into the image and likeness of God is so that we will be a blessing and not a hindrance to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our neighbors. So the the thing that hit me was verse 28 isn't different at all, is it? All the verses have to do with it. Helping others. Alright, so the gospel transforms thieves. Second thing, the gospel deals with our greed. That's to say that the good news of Jesus changes the hearts and lives of those, not only those who are tempted to eat their bread through ill-gotten gain, it also changes the hearts and lives of those who have been blessed with material goods through legitimate work by opening their hearts up to be generous to those who are genuinely in need. Turn in your Bible to this one one passage, other passage for me. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17. 17. And there is tons of stuff about wealth and about giving in the whole of 1 Timothy 6. We will not have the time to go through it the same way I went through a little bit with Ephesians. So we're just going to stick with these verses um, to make a few points. So 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Huh. Real quick, let's take a look at the first, the two negative aspects of Paul's exhortation. He tells uh, Timothy to tell rich believers in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth that is so... Uncertain. In other words, don't get cocky. Don't put your, her- your hope in worldly riches. Because here's the reason why. Who do you think blessed you with those riches? And guess what? Easy come, easy go. God can take it away as quickly as he gives it. No problem. And then where will you be if all your hope was in this world? and the things you have? The things you could brag about. No, to have our hope in hope that kind of stuff is to live on shaky ground. You know, sometimes we say, poor folks, you know, they live with a lot of uncertainty. Well, I guess what? If you're rich in this world and your certainty is in, in things, well, then you're living in, uh, on a, in a lot of uncertainty. You know what doesn't get publicized here in the great Atlantic City? The people that jump from the top of casinos to their death you know why they do because they just blew all their money gambling and that was all they had they thought we, we don't pray a lot about that when we don't hear a lot about it it's not publicized but it's true and the problem was their hope was misplaced wasn't it no no Instead, Paul says they should put their hope where it belongs. I love this line. This line really helps us to understand some things. In the God who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. God's not a pill, Julie. The answer to greed is not asceticism. Asceticism means like you deny yourself anything, anything good or anything pleasurable. I always like to say, God's the one who made taste buds. He could have made it so that we just like, you know, took a pill. You know, like the Jetsons, they'd show like they show show where they took a pill. I'm like, that would stink. That's not progress. That's regression. But anyway, I'm sorry. That, I'm talking from my Italian culture here. We're all about the food. But anyway, let's get back to this. What does he positively tell wealthy Christians to do? He says this. Do good, be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's what the gospel teaches folks in their situation to do. We could simplify it this way. Put off greed. Remember the put off, put on. And put on generosity. Daily. And it's interesting, the language Paul uses is important. He deliberately, when he refers to the wealthy, he refers to them as rich in this present world. You notice that? He doesn't call them rich. He said, yeah, you got some money here. That's temporary. That's temporary. He's clearly implying that there's a future, eternal world to come where earthly riches will, will be useless. That currency isn't going to work in heaven because this gold you think you're going to throw around, we're going to be skating on and walking on it. Streets of gold. It's going to be nothing but pavement. That's the gold we think is so powerful here is nothing. And notice what he says in verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Oh, now I'm going to preach. You ever watch these commercials? You know, that's life. Right? And it's always somebody in some exotic, you know, place where there's this beautiful blue ocean. Right? And they're drinking a Corona or a fancy drink with an umbrella. You know, some kind of poofy fruit thing. And they're saying, now this is life. Paul says, no. That's not true life. Not the life that's worth living. That's going to not only be for this one world. That's temporary. But the world of life will come. That lasts forever. No, that life is the life that Jesus gives us. If you remember, what's eternal life? It's to know Jesus and the one he sent, the Father. So that means this true life, this abundant life, begins now through a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his Father. And it continues. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It continues into eternity. And that's a gift no one can take away. And so this is what he's saying to the wealthy. He's saying by imitating God who is generous and who gives us all things to enjoy, by being generous ourselves and willing to share, he says wealthy believers are showing that their hope is not in their riches, which is so uncertain, but in the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. As Jesus put it, they're laying up their treasures in heaven where their heart is supposed to be. Winston Churchill Churchill, I don't quote from him often but this was a good one he said this we make a living by what we get but we make a life by what we give and I got to be honest that was like a dart to my heart when I read it because I had to ask what kind of life am I making and I got to ask you what kind of life are you making you're tight fisted you're holding on Nobody's going to get what I got? Or are you open-handed? Lord, it's yours anyway. It's on loan. How can I be an agent of help and healing and mercy? Where can I give it? See, this is God's version of redistribution. It's a world of difference from government-imposed redistribution of wealth. God's way is to so transform sinners by the gospel, that they willingly, listen, on their own volition, with joy, give generously to alleviate their neighbor or their brother in Christ's lack. There's no automatic garnishing of our wages in order to give to those who have less. It's the power of the gospel which frees the human heart heart up to give freely as we have freely received from Christ. Because listen, listen, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we don't have time to go to it, but I'm just going to quote it. Who does God love? A joyful giver. A hilarious giver. Because guess what? That's how God gives. God doesn't give like, Ugh, you sinned, well I guess I'll send my son down then. Is that how God gives? No, He gives with joy. He gives with joy. How does Jesus give? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And God wants His people to give with joy. And that is very convicting to me. Because sometimes I give out of duty. Right? You tracking with me? But I know I ain't right. Because I'm not... the. I'm not in the gift. But I ain't done menly. He doesn't just tell Timothy to command the rich in this present world to be generous and willing to share, but notice what else he says, he, he commands them to do good and to be rich in good deeds. So this is what's important. God is saying, don't just give of your goods, although you need to do that. Here's the convicting thing. Give of yourself. Give of your very self. Henry Ward Beecher once said this, Have you ever stopped to think that Christ never gave anyone money? Although there was the one time I'm thinking of when he took the the coin out of the fish's mouth. Remember that? But that's a a little bit. I get what he's saying. Never give anyone money. The riches of the world were his for the taking and his to give away. Yet when the poor and the hungry came to him, he didn't give them money. And he rarely gave them food. He gave them love and service and the greatest gift of all himself. Listen, we need to write checks. Paul just said that but we can't stop there we got to get down in the mess sometimes and we got to preach the gospel of the poor and we got to welcome them in in our midst and and pray to God that he would grant us a a people, a, a congregation that is not only mixed racially but socioeconomically because Jesus was a friend to the poor. You know, I don't know about you, but a lot of times in life, you see people that you meet and you want to kind of go your own social class or above, right? Not many of us go, hey, I want to try to find friends that aren't of my social class, that have a lower standard of living. But the gospel changes all that, doesn't it? It tells us to be deliberate. Does God bless you with plenty, share. Hasn't God given himself to you? Give your very self to others. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy six, seventeen, and 19. Now one of New City's core values, another one of them, is community development. The gospel renews the city socially. And here's one line of our core value. The gospel heals class brokenness by making people with means generous through the power of Christ's sacrificial giving for us and by empowering the poor to self-sufficiency through its hope. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel does change everything and the very last thing I want to point out this morning it doesn't just change, transform thieves it doesn't just deal with our greed but last of all it helps those in need. And I want to point this out. We, we saw it in verse 28 going back to Ephesians. Um, steal no longer. Do something useful. Work with your hands that you might be able to uh, have something to give to those in need. And here's the point. There are folks who are truly in need. I know that you, you, it's like, uh, yeah, duh. But no duh. You know how many people I've met in this great country of ours who look at all the poor as if they're lazy, good for nothings? Who just want to get something? Not all people in need are shuckers and jivers. Not all people in need are dishonest thieves. The Bible itself gives us examples. There are widows who have no able-bodied family members to help them out. They're in need. There are orphans, that is, abandoned children who don't have parents to take care of them. For various reasons. Through no fault of their own. There are handicapped folks who aren't able to provide for all their needs, even if they were able to get a a little job. There are single-parent families that are literally doing everything they can. Burn the wick at both ends, and they're still coming up short every week. And I'll tell you, we can go on and on. And I'm only talking about our country. What about when we go to other countries? Uh-oh. Because the word poor, the term poor, is relative, isn't it? Because my wife is blessed to go on medical missions trips, and then she comes back and gives me these stories. And, and, and they, they just literally break your heart. In El Salvador, she told me that there are these children who are so hungry on the streets that they sniff glue to take away the hunger pains. And then guess what the next step is? Addiction to the the shoe glue. And then they prostitute themselves on the street, not even to get food, to get more shoe glue. This is a real thing in El Salvador. Another example, I'm not going to go on and on, but there's one other example that always strikes me. This one missionary, great guy, he'll go to this very, very poor community. kind of poverty we don't even, I don't know that we have here in our country. And he'll drive a truck through, and they hand out free pizza to the homeless families. And there's this one lady with her little daughter, and they were holding hands, running behind the truck. And my wife says, the little girl had such a big smile on her face, she, so, she was so happy to grab the pizza. And Mary was breaking down, she said, that little girl doesn't even realize how bad her situation is. as she lives on the street. No, there's one more in Bulgaria where they reach out to gypsies in Bulgaria. They were able to bring glasses, reading glasses. that We get here real cheap, dirt cheap, but they don't have them over there for them. For the first time in her life, an 80-year-old gypsy was able to read because she was given some glasses that each and every one of us, especially me, take for granted every day that I could read our hearts have been changed by the gospel we'll want to be productive and work hard so we can help those in need if we know the god who gives us all things richly to enjoy it'll bring us delight to brighten up the lives of others and to alleviate some of their burden and some of their suffering saint augustine never saw this one before he's he's my favorite church father but he said this, poverty is the load of some and wealth is the load of others. Perhaps the greater load of the two. Bear the load of your neighbor's poverty and let him bear with you the load of your wealth. You lighten your load by lightening his. Isn't that awesome? I don't know why I've never seen that before. Uh, shout out to Africa. He was a bishop in Africa. The gospel does transform hearts and lives, so that those in need are helped. And we could go on and on. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, a couple more minutes, and then we're gonna uh, land this plane, as my wife says, time to land it. Um, (laughs) But I want to mention is this: there's so many ways that we can help, and we can be generous, and we can give and share. One of those ways is I think of I would have never been able. Thank the Lord Jesus that there were wealthy Christians that saw that I had a call in my life to preach the gospel and gave me a grant so I could go to Covenant College. You know, And here's my point. In the body of Christ, there should not be animosity of, of those who are low income against those who have been blessed with wealth or those who are blessed with wealth against those who, are, who don't have as much. We should be thankful for one another. And we should work together and we should be loving each other on both ends. So this is what I want to close with because there's the million dollar question that begs to be answered. How do we navigate the harrowing road road of who is really in need and who's just trying to ride the gravy train? Because if you've been in New City, hopefully you're not going to fall asleep right now. You're going to listen to me because it's the question we all ask. Whenever Dave and I when we go, and we, we, we as Hope for AC and New City Fellowship folks, churches will ask us to come and talk about uh, serving the poor. It's like the, the, the number one question that we get. Constantly. They're looking for this silver bullet that I would say, here's the answer. And they're going to be like, ah. Well, I'm going to close with the best quote I've found outside the Bible on this issue. And it comes from no other than C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to start quoting it and my people are going to go, not that quote again. We'll keep listening. I'm going to quote to the next line that I always leave out. So here it is. Here it is. It will not bother me in the hour of death to reflect that I have been had for a sucker by any number of imposters. But it would be a torment to know that one had refused even one person in need. Then he adds this. I never quote this part because it's rough. Another thing that annoys me is when people say, why'd you give that man money? He'll probably go and drink it. My reply is, because if I'd kept it, I should probably have drunk it myself. On that mic drop, let's pray. Father, we thank you